Hey, Josh Felber here from Making Bank. Today's guest, he completed the fifth largest exit of any black CEO. That's pretty good, nine figures. He dives in today about obviously where digital media is going, OTT over the air, things like that. But what's super important is being an entrepreneur, what it takes, you know, the grind, how to grow the business, raising capital, as well as the day in and day out of, you know, really what it takes from a mindset perspective, focus and perseverance. So again, make sure you guys tune in today to check out Andre Swanston on Making Bank. Hey guys, also too, man, if you're interested in checking out some of the amazing gear, gratitude quotes, freedom quotes, awesome t-shirts, hoodies, hats, whatever you like, the softest clothing, most of it's all made in the USA. Check it out now. You can use my code MAKINGBANK10, MAKINGBANK and the number 10 for 10% off your first order. And again, check out gratitudegear.com. You are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Andre Swanston completed the fifth largest exit of any black CEO in history. Andre, Mr. Nexit, is a dynamic tech innovator and media magnet who is a regular contributor to Bloomberg, Rolling Stone, and Fast Company. The Bronx, New York-born entrepreneur and sales phenom at Ameriprise and J.P. Morgan Chase graduated with a B.A. in economics from the University of Connecticut. And he's here today to share some exciting stuff with you. So I'm Wanted to welcome Andre Swanson to Making Bank today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, ho- hopefully I don't disappoint. I don't know how exciting I am. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll, we'll be able to extract some awesome stuff. You said you're a strategic guy. So that's always, that always makes a good play when you run a business and everything else. So, so guys, get a little bit, get, give our audience a little interest and insight of how you got started as an entrepreneur. Did you kind of roll out being a kid entrepreneur? Did it kind of happen later in life? Yeah, so uh, I would say I, I formally became an entrepreneur probably in college, um, but started my first business junior year of college. But the, the and I'll, I'll touch on that, but the, the entrepreneur mindset, if I look back, I, I think probably was there from a very young age. I always wanted to do things different than other people did. Like the mm. notion of going along to get along was just so boring to me. Uh, from the way I tied my shoelace, you know, when I was five or four to, um, you know, uh, figuring out different ways to do math problems. You know, if there was an, a, a formula to do things, I always wondered, well, there's got to be a different way to figure that out. And I think a lot of that lends itself to the entrepreneurial way of thinking. The first real form, well, there, I'll, I'll tell you two, I actually tell you two. Sure. So there's, there's the, the first kind of public thing I acknowledge as a, as a, as a venture, which is um, promoting parties and, um, events in, in, in college, which had later led me to, to owning a nightclub when I was 23 years old. Um, but, but even before that, my, my freshman year of college, um, you know, everybody used to have the, the cable zapper, you know, it's past the statutes of limitations and also I won't get into too much, money. but everybody had the, you know, the cable zapper in the late nineties where you zap and you get, get everything. I had a cable zapper, um, that I bought for, I think $350 from somebody in, in Philly. 
And uh, <laughs> I was at LaSalle University in, in Philadelphia, this four transfer up to UConn. And I was charging people, I don't know, $100 to zap their cable and like $40 for a refresh. And so I made it. And so this is freshman year college, just be the cable zap guy. Right. Um, uh, I actually, it was a it was a business I had with a, a buddy of mine that, that went to LaSalle University. Um, rest in peace to him, Rasul Butler. He ended up being in the NBA for about 10 years and stuff like that. And my freshman year, we were the cable zap guys. So, That's awesome. <laughs> the, first, the first real entrepreneurial venture. And I <laughs> my LinkedIn page. <laughs> hey, we all got to start somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People probably paid for that pretty well. Yeah, until they they move to the new digital boxes. That's one of those uh, businesses where you, it, it's funny because there's learnings, everything that you do in life. And I think if there's one thing that, that I try to impress upon people, it doesn't matter where you're from, what school you went to, whatever. There's life experiences and different things that, that you can take learnings from that mm. you can impact later. So one of the things that's interesting about that business is that it had a, 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 a short shelf life because it was right around that time in the late 90s and early 2000s that a lot of cable systems were switching to more of the the digital boxes and, and those zappers didn't work anymore right so so right. it's great great business for about a year until uh, uh comcast switched all the cable boxes in the in the philadelphia region well and you kind of it's that was kind of like in the tech field too <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you learn for later on in business, you have to think about the, the longevity of your solutions and, and how do you adapt and, and what are the, the the risks to, you know, revenue and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, people would laugh about that example, but it uh, has very real world implications for larger businesses. Um, Definitely. What kind of got you started then? Obviously, you worked at uh, Meriprise and JP Morgan, kind of got in the sales, it sounds like. Was that kind of like what happened after college? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I was one of the bigger nightclub and, and event and concert promoters in, in the Northeast. Uh, used that to, to raise some capital to open a nightclub um, in back in 2005, a year out of school. But my parents, my mom in particular, always uh, used to say, well, when are you going to get a real job? Like, you don't go to college <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to have a nightclub, right? You, you know, um, you should go into finance, you should go into something. And what's interesting is in the late 90s and early 2000s, the hot thing that everybody wanted to be was investment banking or banking. Mm. Since transition, every college kid now wants to be in a tech startup, right? But 20, right. 20 years ago, it was everybody wanted to be at Goldman or JP Morgan or uh, before when they were still around, the Beer Stearns and the Lehman Brothers. Yep. That was uh, the thing. And so uh, I was no different to a lot of other kids. Uh, that was an economics major. And so that was the natural evolution and uh, had the opportunity to to work in Ameriprise Financial and they recruited to to go and do private wealth management at JP Morgan. Um, and what was interesting is, is that I had this exposure as a small business owner in terms of owning restaurants and nightclubs and what was needed to market to people to get them in the door, right? Hmm. Media from, from print to local radio uh, and then later on to you know digital and, and, and more streaming media type marketing. And then at the same time doing private wealth management, I got an opportunity to see how night, not high net worth individuals diversify their funds outside of the traditional stocks and bonds and cash and, and other stuff that I could help them with and, and moving money to do angel investing, right? So you have clients, oh, I'm taking out 200,000, 500,000 million dollars to invest in a, in a, in a venture deal. Uh, and as I started to look at some of these opportunities, I was so underwhelmed, right? I was like, this is the dumbest idea ever. This company doesn't make any sense. Or I would see it, I don't think this is viable. And so that's when your ego mixed with kind of knowledge. And, and I said, there's a big opportunity in terms of where 
I need where dollars are going to have to shift in terms of the future of marketing from traditional print uh, and local radio to things like podcast and mm. and and streaming television, social media advertising. And I was like, these these really successful wealthy people are, are, are putting millions of dollars in ideas that I think I can have a better one. And that's where that kind of nexus genesis moment was of saying, okay, I'm going to leave JP Morgan and start a tech startup in a field that I actually have never even worked in. So, <laughs> so, so no experience, no knowledge. You're like, cool. That, and, but I, sometimes that's how like entrepreneurs do it. I mean, a lot, of, actually a lot of times, I mean, it's, you get started and you're like, ah, hey, idea pops in and you just go after it and you go do it and leave the, you know, six plus figure job. And it's like, all right, I'm going to make this happen and, you know, figure out whatever it takes. And, you know, fortunately you got a little bit of entrepreneurial experience with the nightclubs and the, the TV zappers and everything else. So, um, what was, so what was that kind of that next step then into that digital space that you were, um, heading towards? So the, the very first step that I took is you have to realize in any you know, business venture and opportunity, kind of what your strengths are and what your weaknesses. And, mm-hmm. and, and the first step is to to surround yourself with people that are strong at the things that you're not, right? And one of the things are, I'm saying, great, I have this great idea. Uh, I think I can raise capital. I think I can, you know, do all these things that are necessary to run a successful business, but I'm not an engineer and I'm not a coder. So somebody actually has to build this. Right. Um, so I thought, I thought to my mind, well, who's the smartest person I know that 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 can do that. And uh, one of my dorm mates, I went to um, boarding school, I went to the Hotchkiss School in Connecticut. And uh, one of the kids in my dorm um, ended up being my, my co-founder. He was a mechanical engineer, mathematician, Carnegie Mellon guy. Mm. And I reached out and said, hey, man, I got this idea. Here's what it is. And it just kind of spiraled into, into that. And one of the things that was really fortunate, and I'm sure we'll touch on, is it was much more difficult to raise capital than I thought. I think I went into this being like, I know all these wealthy people and I'm connected and I have this great network and I'm, you know, I'm just the the, the greatest thing since sliced bread and the millions of dollars just gonna pour in for this idea. Uh, it was the exact opposite of that. Um, a lot of the capital dried up in terms of the kind of advertising tech SaaS market that I was in. And, and this is, you know, we're talking between 2011 and, and 2014. Yeah. Um, People were were not looking at those type of ventures. You know, the business was found in Connecticut. Everybody at that time, you know, I had a lot of offers to move to the Bay Area and and, and we can fund you or or go to New York City and really wanted to to keep the business, you know, founded, uh, headquartered in Connecticut. So that was another geographic challenge. So, um, and I think there was other challenges, which, you know, we can, we can talk about forever. And so one of the things that we really benefited from was uh, my co-founder was, you know, kind of like a Swiss army knife, right? So you could do front end development and back end and DevOps and a lot of things. And so we were able to punch above our weight and and run a lot more efficiently than I think most businesses could at the time. We just sure. scraped and scraped and scraped. And, and uh, you know, we're increasing revenue by two to three X every year, even with no real venture capital behind us. And it was really difficult, but it allowed us, um, it, it allowed us, I think, more of a freedom in terms of really, you know, to, to, to use a, a famous analogy to, to skate where the puck was going. Yep. And kind of be ahead of the curve relative to, you know, we made, we went all in on that streaming television, connected TV. But at the time we started the company, it was IPTV was the term, it wasn't even called connected TV. Right. So we, yeah. we, we bet, we bet everything that either connected TV and streaming audio, podcasting, smart speakers, smart TVs, that was going to be the future of media consumption. And we, and, and, and I said to myself, 
if this is the case, we're going to be a, a hugely successful company. And if I'm wrong, we'll be out of business. There really is no in between. And fortunately enough, it was the right call. And yeah, you guys were early on in that space. I mean, it's like, you know, when Mark Cuban started his uh, streaming radio stuff back and and then Yahoo acquired him, you know, many years ago. And that kind of got him jump started. Either it was going to really take off and, you know, he was doing it for the sports side of stuff and everything. And you guys, you know, are starting in, I mean, what, 2000. 11 through 14 was so early with, you know, OTT and, you know, or IPTV and stuff it was, as it was at that time, you know, even in with digital ads and any kind of streaming or anything. So obviously moving forward, then you guys are scraping by, you know, uh, didn't raise any capital yet and, you know, and, and really starting to get this going. What, what kind of was the big break for it that uh, kind of got, got you that over that hump? I, I would say there was, there was kind of three real pivotal mo- uh, moments in the, in, the, in the life of the company. The first one was when we raised our first institutional capital, which wasn't a lot of money, frankly, but it was a lot more than we had. So it was relative yeah. to that, it was this jolt. And that was probably in uh, January 2014. The state of Connecticut was actually our first institutional investor, um, uh, Connecticut mm. Innovations Ventures. Um, it's all about you know economic development. And that allowed us to hire, I think, our first seven or eight employees. And we were working in a 400 square foot office, real tight, real tight. I would say that kind of got us to the to that stepping stone. We were able to get introduced to uh, um, some angel investors that that then capitalized the company with about a million and a half dollars. Then uh, Progress Ventures, which is an early stage venture capital fund out of uh, Cambridge, Mass, invested. And then it kind of just started spiraling. I'd say the mm-hmm. next pivotal year for us was 2017. And that was when the advertising industry, I think, started to wake up to the, the real potential and, and growth of connected TV. Um, and so we were able to negotiate a lot of enterprise deals. I think we did 17 or 18 multi-year enterprise deals with major media companies and ad agencies and technology platforms to, to power their data and targeting for connected TV advertising. And what was really cool about that, and this was another thing that I, you know, when I talk about is kind of this execution strategy um, so it was so critical to our success. We knew that the big boys, once the money started coming in in the space with, you know, the Oracles, the Adobe's, the Nielsen's, the Comscore, yep. go on and on, that kind of dominated TV, traditional TV and traditional digital advertising would eventually come in. And we knew that we didn't have the money or the scale or the presence to fend them off once they came. Yeah. And so one of the things that we did was we would almost give away the first year, but we wanted multi-year contracts because we mm. said this thing is growing so fast that we want to have the key players across the industry locked up to working with us and then we you know then we would have real enterprise value and be more strategically positioned and so 2017 was that pivotal year where where i say kind of the giants were still asleep and we went and locked up almost every major <laughs> uh, hmm. important company in the industry to a multi-year contract and so the third you know major stepping stone for us then was in 2020 um, with with COVID and social distancing and lockdown, we're streaming from March of 2020 to June of 2020. So in that like three four month period, okay, we, we we grew probably what we anticipated we would grow over the next 18 to 24 months. We did in in like 90 days. Wow! <laughs> right, <laughs> all of those companies, those major companies that we locked up to multi year deals, 
now exploded in terms of the amount of streaming. It was already massive growth in 2017, 2018, 2019. Sure. But then it just went to a whole nother level in 2020. And, uh, you know, we were best positioned to take advantage of that. And, and so it, it's, it's uh, obviously that's an abbreviated version, but those I think were three really pivotal uh, points for us. No, that's, that's really great. I mean, and with uh, obviously more people, obviously everybody was home <laughs> or a lot of people were home. So they, a lot more streaming and everything happening and, you know, dialing up uh, the bandwidth for all that with like where you guys were and kind of started, where do you kind of see the future, you know, of all this going kind of hit there? And then I want to circle back on a couple other points, but where do you kind of got see the future of OTT and digital advertising? And, you know, obviously with iOS 14 and cutting off, you know, tracking and things like that. A lot of people are trying to figure out where to access people, you know, how to track, um, you know, revenue from digital ads and, and streaming and all these kind of things. So I'd love to hear your insights on that. Yeah, no, you know, I, I think, again, a lot of it is, is about making these same calls. So the questions that you're, you're asking now are the same questions that I've been trying to figure out over the last few years exactly right. what, what the impact is going to be. And one of the one of the decisions that that we made in um, in October of 2020, uh, we sold the company to TransUnion. Um, and a lot of people said, you know, why not, you know, one of the the, the ratings companies or the, the big media companies. And what, what we thought was it was important to remain agnostic, right? Mm -hmm. There was going to be challenges relative to data and privacy. Uh, interoperability of identity and, and all the things as as more and more of ad dollars are, are being fragmented uh, across media. And we thought that the only way that um, we thought what was successful for us, as well as what would be successful in the future, was having somebody being agnostic. You didn't want a media company grading their own homework. Oh yeah, we 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 effectively reached all your the, your target audience in a in a privacy compliant way. Believe us, because we told you so, right? You don't want a media company <laughs> yeah. saying that, or or necessarily you don't want a device manufacturer saying like, oh, our device outperformed the other device. Uh, you needed kind of that impartial third party. And then when you thought about all the challenges with regulation, whether it's in Europe or the United States and so forth, you also needed a third party that people could trust. And when you think about privacy and trust and uh, being stewards of data, I think uh, a transunion is up there with uh, just about any company in the world that right. in terms of public perception for that and, and kind of the, the rigorousness of, of its processes and, and, and what it does. Um, and so transunion actually came on as a strategic investor in 2019 in the company. And so mm. we developed a close relationship. And uh, as we started to get approached by the media companies and other companies about acquiring, it just seemed uh, like the right place. So in terms of you know your specific question about where we go, in terms of the deprecation of identifiers and other things that are happening across the space, I think more and more we're going to rely on kind of a trusted third party to, to, to be the source of truth of understanding uh, what data was used, where, you know, where was it used, what the impact was to your target audience. And, and, and that's where we, we feel like we're, we're, we're filling uh, a real critical role in the future evolution of the space. Really cool. And kind of circling back, like I said, I, when you guys sold the company, what was, I guess, what was that process like and what were some of the challenges? And then what were some of the things that if people are thinking about selling their company or been approached, what they kind of need to look for? So I think it's, it's, it's different by different industries, right? Sure. And so 
if you are running a, you know, you have a, a plumbing business, right? And you have, you know, 20 plumbers working for you and, and you have your trucks out and you have some commercial contracts and you residential and so forth. I think it's much more of a traditional, you know, if you were going to get an investment or bought by a private equity company or, or even get a, a small business loan, I think you're talking about much more uh, traditional business metrics, right? Profit, loss, expenses, uh, repeat customers, contracts. And with a tech startup, I think it's much different. Mm-hmm. No one, I don't know if no one, but a lot of people don't like to admit this because they want to act as if tech companies run in the same way as, as normal businesses. But in many times with venture-backed companies, what you're thinking about is not only revenue growth or margins or stuff like that, you're thinking the quality of revenue and the impact that that will have on future valuations, right? And so going back to the, 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 the thought that I, that I had in terms of almost giving away the first year for free or very, very right. little to, to lock up multi-year contracts, well, there's a, a few things that that accomplishes. I understood that we needed the multi-year contracts to be better positioned to fend off the big boys once they woke up to the opportunity. But I also knew that the value of multi-year contracts was exponentially more in terms of the in terms of um, the multiple you could get on revenue as opposed to one-off. Uh, contracts. And so in terms of preparing to raise another round, I knew that, you know, 50 cents of a multi-year contract was worth two or $3 of a one-time, of one-time, one-time expense. And so those are some of the things um, relative to your business. I, I, I think that there's different ways that you have to think about uh, growing it and, and valuation. No, that's interesting. What, and kind of off that, I mean, you guys have ended up raising money at you know at a certain point and then going from there, what kind of uh, insights or tips do you guys have, or would you have for you know somebody that's like, hey, cool, you know, I want to raise some money, you know, and, and grow my business. And obviously, you when you first tried it, it wasn't working, and then you know, then I at some point down the road, you guys were able to start raising capital and stuff. So kind of maybe give us that side of it, and then yeah. I, I, this is going to sound somewhat facetious, but um, I'm dead serious. I think the the First, number one advice that I give for anybody trying to raise capital or starting some sort of uh, venture is to try to do as much as you can without needing to raise capital. Mm. Um, sure. And reason, and that's important for a couple of reasons. One, you can't control necessarily your access to capital. There's things you can do to influence it, but you don't control it. Uh, but you can control if you spend 70 hours a week <laughs> working on your, <laughs> your business venture. Uh, The other thing is I think you have more freedom and flexibility, particularly early on, everybody pivots, everybody tweaks, everybody adapts. And you do that, or quite frankly, you should do that very early on. It's easier to make those types of changes before you have clients, before Mm -hmm. you have a lot of employees, before you have a board. And so the more you can, I think too many people now, um, it's sexy, the concept of raising venture capital and stuff like that. It's not, it's not, it is arduous and, and, and it, and it's restrictive in many ways. And so I think it's really critical to do as much as you possibly can prior to even thinking about raising capital. So that's, that's, that's number one. I think number two is understanding the relevancy of what, of who you're talking to about raising capital. I think a lot of people get frustrated because XYZ angel investor or or XYZ venture capital firm turns them down. Um, but then oftentimes it's it's not necessarily the, the right fit. And so kind of really understanding the spaces that people play in and the relevancy of your business opportunity to them. 
I think another thing is to to which having a sales background helps in is is being comfortable with rejection. Right. right. Um, when you're in sales, you're getting rejected ninety percent <laughs> of the time, right? Yeah. You almost get immune to you know, we used to joke, you know, when you're when you're quote unquote dialing for dollars, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you, you, the person hangs up on you. You make fun of you make fun of them um, for two seconds to hype, and you hype yourself back up and you dial again, right? I mean, you, you mm -hmm. can't. Um, and so I think that's a, that's another thing. And I, and there's a lot of barriers, and and you know, we could talk about the lack of capital uh, to black and brown founders, uh, mm -hmm. low single digit percentage at best. Female founders wow. of any race, low single digit percentage at best. If you were a female minority, zero point nothing percent of capital uh, uh, goes to you. There's geographical, right? If you could be a working white class uh, guy in West Virginia or Wyoming, good luck raising venture capital there as well, right? So there's, there is, I, I mean, for 90% of the people that are or maybe more that are, will, right. will listen to what we're saying right now. Raising capital is way harder and there's barriers that, that you can't even imagine uh, or, or wouldn't even think apply to you that they probably do, right? And so I think that's even more reason why it's, um, it, it's an important. The last thing that I'll say around that, which is very helpful, is surrounding yourself with, with people that I think have a different natural market or relationships or network than you do because it, it widens the opportunities for exposure for your business opportunity or lets you look at things in a different way. And, and I think one of the, the things that has helped make me as, uh, as successful as I am is because I had such a diverse group of not only uh, employees and team members, but also investors. And so just the, the way that we were able to uh, develop relationships for business development meetings, right? Intro from this person. Oh, I went to college with this person. I used to work with this person 10 years ago or my son's dad, roommates or something like that, you know? Um, but you'd be shocked how these things happen, but you can't do that if it's you and your next door neighbor and your buddy from, from college and that's your whole team. You guys have- right very similar networks and, and oftentimes can't cast as wide a net. So, Awesome. Uh, we just got a couple minutes left. Guys, I hope you guys really listen to what Andre's talking about today. Uh, just from the experience from being an entrepreneur to raising capital to kind of the mindset that you need to have kind of through this whole process. Make sure you guys go back, listen, rewind, watch this again, take those notes and then start applying it to what you're doing in your business, in your personal life and everything as well. Before we wrap up, Andre, what's uh, like... Obviously, you've been an entrepreneur since college, got a lot of experience and skills and from you know starting to selling, you know, all sorts of things. What's maybe one or two ideas or just something you really want to leave entrepreneurs with, you know, before we wrap up here? Wow. These these, these open-ended questions are the hardest, right? Because you start <laughs> right. with a thousand things and you have nowhere to go. Look, I, I, I think the the most important thing for anybody, and again, every we all have different life experiences and and i think there's value in that right it doesn't matter yeah you know, how much money you come from or college you went i mean it really doesn't matter there is there's things that have happened to us in our life it could be a, a social interaction it could be something we saw a movie it doesn't matter that can impact the way that we think of things and we just have to let those 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 learnings we have to use them you have to kind of trust your gut in many instances and i think you know, one of the most important things is understanding what your motivation is, because being an entrepreneur is difficult. 
uh, everybody always hears the success stories like, oh, this person's a billionaire or, or Andre had a nine figure exit. Like they're different. We're no yeah. better than anybody else. Right. We're <laughs> a, a lot of it is having the, 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 the ambition. So the mentality that you're going to go after something and that separates 90% of the people there. Right. Most people don't have the guts or the focus to do some of the things that that many successful entrepreneurs do it has nothing to do with intelligence or, or anything like that. And, and then the second thing is perseverance. So many mm. people quit. I know so many people that yeah. that that re, the big their biggest regret is either not trying to do something or quitting something too early. And, and, and so I think the real difference is, is it, that the, the thing that allows you to get that confidence and that ambition or that risk uh, willing to take the risk to try something is wanting it really bad. And then the, the ability to have perseverance to keep going is also having some kind of North star that is keeping you focused. And for me, it was this concept of the evolution of the family. Like I, my dad told me when I was young, your only responsibility in life is to give your one day, you're going to have kids and to provide more opportunities to them than I was able to provide to you. That's it. That's your only job in life. And so if my mindset is like, I, I just have to you know, raise the bar for my family, then you're willing to do things that, that you think can get you here. And, and everybody has different motivations, but whatever yours is, you lock into it and uh, just don't give up. It sounds cliche and corny, but I truly <laughs> believe that that is the biggest differentiator in successful entrepreneurs. Nah, that's fantastic. I totally agree. I mean, I think it's, it's definitely needed and you're so right. I mean, I've, I've had 15 companies since I was 14 years old. So some wow. worked out, some didn't. <laughs> so, yeah. some, but, you, but either some, way, you keep, you keep learning, you keep, keep pushing. Yep. You keep evolving, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, tell our audience where they can get more information or uh, connect with you at. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a good question. So I am, I am, I am trying to be more active on Twitter. I'm one of those guys <laughs> that you tweets like five times a year. But I am, I am, I make a consorted effort. So it's just Andre Swanston uh, is is my Twitter. I'm also cool. pretty active on LinkedIn. I actually respond to emails as well. You know, on it may be LinkedIn. going through twenty on one weekend and not looking at them for a month. Right. But I eventually, I eventually get to to pretty much all of them. Um, and yeah, so I'm pretty accessible. Cool. Make sure you guys uh, check them out. Uh, connect with Andre. And Andre, thank you again for coming on Making Bank, sharing some awesome insights and just kind of your life experience and everything with with everybody today as an entrepreneur. So thanks again. Appreciate it, Josh. I am Josh Felbert. You are watching Making Bank. Get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. And sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.